our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the powers, against the dominations of the dark world, against the spirits of evil that live in the celestial regions. Dr. O'Donnell, Father Pollard, honorable faculty, distinguished guests and friends of Christendom College, it is a great honor for me to stand before you this evening in the wake of a symposium on a theme whose depth and challenge are of the highest caliber indeed. For the problem of evil is one whose mystery and gravity are surpassed perhaps only by the question of God. Since time immemorial, or in fact since exile from paradise, humanity has faced the reality of evil as a mystery, a problem, a question, an enigma, but also as the subject of experience in individual and social existence. Over millennia, philosophers have wrecked their brains seeking to penetrate the problem of evil. It has occupied the minds of great Christian thinkers since the beginning, including, of course, St. Augustine, who wrestled with this problem for much of his life and greatly influenced our theology and theodicy with his approach, both brilliant and practical. So at the start of our reflections, we need to turn briefly to Augustine when he asked in his confessions, where is evil then, and whence, and how crept it in hither? What is its root, and what is its seed, or hath it no being? And in his opus, The City of God, he offers the answer, evil has no positive nature, but the loss of good has received the name evil. Yet even admitting evil as privatio boni, the question remained, whence and how crept it in hither? And he writes, and I strain to perceive what I now heard, that free will was the cause of our doing ill. And I inquired what iniquity was, and ascertained it was not to be a substance, but a perversion of the will, bent aside from God. As we turn our attention to communism, which in the eyes of many, is the greatest evil the world has ever known. We certainly need to deal with the reality of the perversion of the will, turned aside from God, as Augustine described it, yet here we face evil on a gigantic scale, so terrifying that the human mind finds it difficult to comprehend. And indeed, this presentation will attempt to look at communism as demonic evil. For communism represents evil that reached for the absolute, evil that assumed a corporate identity as it took the form of a godless revolutionary ideology and genocidal praxis, mobilizing millions under its murderous banners and victimizing millions in its infernal furnace. The challenge inherent in considering such evil is to paraphrase St. Augustine, the question or questions, where does it come from? Which roots does it spring from? How does one explain it? Historians studying communist regimes in the 20th century describe their three main characteristics as genocide, terror, and repressions, with each of these terms concealing in its details unspeakable atrocities perpetrated against individuals, societies, even entire nations. The death toll attributed to communism, and everybody remembers the Black Book of Communism, the, the work of many Western historians on this topic, the death toll attributed to communism is a staggering hundred million victims. As the French historian Stéphane Courtois writes, it's in the, in the Black Book of Communism, communist regimes 
turned mass crime into a full-blown system of government. And they are responsible for a far greater number of deaths than Nazism or any other political system. We may note that historians attribute 25 million victims to Nazism. And the cruel irony is that communism and Nazism are blood brothers. They are two sides of the same coin. They both spring from the same Marxist roots. Hitler always admitted that his movement was Marxist. So again, how do you even begin to comprehend such monstrous evil? How do you explain this existence in human history? And here, the challenge grows even mightier when you realize that communism has never been universally denounced or condemned as evil by the international community. As the famous Russian dissident and historian Vladimir Bukovsky wrote, any event in our lives comes under scrutiny, especially if people have been killed. Then experts conduct analyses, seek to determine the degree of guilt, even of governments, if they had the slightest connection with what occurred. Yet here we have an ideology and power structure which afflicted, affected practically every country in the world, caused scores of millions in lives, and almost brought about global destruction, which is not being examined by a single country or international organization. Let me offer a po one poignant example from our time. This past spring, a group of East European deputies to the European Parliament submitted a motion to condemn communist genocide as crimes against humanity. And the motion was struck down by this leftist-dominated body. This has been the case with such motions in many countries or international organizations over decades. As a Canadian conservative minister commented, we have disequilibrium in our historical memory. We condemn the crimes of fascism in the 20th century as representative of objective evil. But somehow we just pass by the crimes of communism, which in absolute brutal numbers are far greater. In Western universities, it is still considered chic to be Marxist, and they have never been held to account. This is an important aspect of our reflection on communism as demonic evil. For the question is, how does it manage to escape condemnation? Already in 1937, Pope Pius XI warned in the encyclical Divini Redemptoris, very few have been able to penetrate the true nature of communism. The Catholic Italian historian Roberto De Mattei, known to us, of course, admits this is communism great victory, that it has gone down without any punishment, without being put on trial, without any ideological indictments which would condemn its memory. For the question defies all rational power of logic. With 100 million victims, not one communist leader or murderer has been put on trial. No communist organization or agency has been held accountable for proven <coughs> horrific crimes. Not one agent of Lenin's Cheka terror agency through Gorbachev's KGB or their satellites in the communist countries has faced justice. On the contrary, they retired with medals and pensions. Solzhenitsyn described Russia as a land where if you drive a spade into the ground, you are likely to dig out human bones. And yet, there are no communist holocaust studies in Russian or Western universities. No international agencies hunting communist criminals, analogous to those pursuing Nazi murderers. 
It is worth mentioning the case of Poland's democratic government attempt to bring to justice communist murderers from the Stalinist years who emigrated to Sweden, England, and Israel. With eyewitness accounts and documentary proof of horrific mass murders of Polish Catholic patriots perpetrated by those security agents in prisons and concentration camps after the Soviets established communism in Poland in 1945, all three countries have refused to extradite them for trial. These are very, very elderly persons, you can imagine. But at least in the recent time, they were still alive. With Nazi criminals, such refusal would be unthinkable. But communist murderers are somehow protected. The irony is that the Polish government is still obligated to pay them pensions as to retired government officials. Still, one other aspect of communist evil points to its demonic nature that we have to consider. How is it possible that communism still fascinates and enjoys the intellectual support among large segments of society, especially the intelligentsia, the academia, and young students? Recall the uproar and indignation when President Reagan called the Soviets an evil empire. The reaction of the leftist liberal elites was, how dare he? The intellectual elites cling to the idea that communism is good and was only messed up in practice, thus allegedly never tried in reality. Somehow being a leftist and supporting Marxism lays a claim to being morally superior. Sadly, this perversity has penetrated into the church with Marxism-inspired liberation theology, causing much grief to Pope John Paul II. Unfortunately, in recent time, even Pope Francis caused a consternation in the press interview when a journalist asked, so you yearn for a society where equality dominates. This, as you know, is the program of Marxist socialism and then of communism. Are you therefore thinking of a Marxist type of society? To which Francis is reported to reply, it has been said many times and my response has always been that, if anything, it is the communists who think like Christians. It is heartbreaking for people from former Soviet countries to hear this. As that argument was beaten into our heads in school by teachers and the propaganda. In fact, I remember we were taught that we should support the party for Christians were first communists, as they had everything in common. We were, we were being told this in class, in school. The truth is that communists do not think like Christians but more like devils. Christians teach love of enemies, while communism demands their total extermination. The Marxist ideology is violently anti-God and about class struggle, not love of neighbor. And the first Christians shared everything of their own free will, not being forced by a gun or threat of reprisal against their family. How communists think is poignantly expressed in a letter from Bukharin remember the name from history, Stalin's close collaborator, until he was done away with. And he wrote to a comrade in the international in England. Here in our country, we are absolute masters. We fear no one at all. In the whole of Russia, there is not a single household in which we have not killed in some manner or other the father, the mother, a brother, a daughter, a son, some near relative or friend. Christians do not think this way. Communists practiced as a principle the collective responsibility of the family. 
When one member was arrested, the entire family and relatives were rounded up too. Many were shot, the others sent to Siberia. The Bolsheviks killed not just the bad czar, but the entire family with the children. Were they bad too? Christians do not think this way, nor do such things. How is it possible that the Western intelligentsia pretend not to know this and compare communists to Christians? The only explanation can be diabolical confusion. They are the educated elites. Don't they know history? Facts already widely known. Let's look at history and what it has shown about the diabolical way communists think. Vladimir Bukovsky, the dissident Russian historian, said that every communist regime upon taking power physically eliminates 10% of the population, especially from the upper educated classes. This is deemed a historical necessity of the class struggle. Poland's tragic experience testifies to the truth of this statement. When the Soviets, in collaboration with the Nazis, attacked Poland from the east in September of 39, the reign of terror affected primarily the intelligentsia and the clergy, whom the Soviets called enemies of the proletariat. Mass executions were accompanied by a gigantic program of forced exile of two million people to Siberia. Parts of my family were in, in that also. Entire families were packed into rail cattle cars for a week's-long journey over thousands of miles in appalling condition of starvation and disease with death reaping a horrific harvest. Worth noting here is the, is the fact that Nazi transports of people to the camps have been universally condemned as crimes against humanity and prosecuted in courts. This has never happened to the communist crimes. The invading Soviets captured entire Polish armies retreating east from the German Blitzkrieg. And the fate of Polish soldiers in the communist hands exceeded in horror the cruelties inflicted by the Nazis. Officers captured by the Germans ended up in POW camps, whereas those captured by the Soviets ended up dead. The Katyn massacre, as we all know, officially admitted only after the fall of the Soviet Union, counts among the most horrific crimes of World War II, whereby thousands of officers, the elites of the Polish nation, as many of them were professionals, called up to service as the war broke out. They were brutally murdered by the Soviets, their hands bound with barbed wire, shot with a shot to the back of the head, the Bolshevik style. Polish officers died according to the evil logic of how communists think. They were liquidated as class enemies of the proletariat. And the Western intellectuals claim that they do not know that. Why do the academics and the media condemn Nazi evil, but not the communist one? What diabolical power is at work here? In Poland, we strove to explain it, saying that Western intellectuals know communism only from books, from theory. And espousing atheism, they are enthralled by leftist utopias of earthly paradise. Admitting the evil of communism would pull the rug from under their feet. Their whole fake world would collapse, and they would collapse with it. So the pretenses and, and the deception must, must be kept no matter what. Now, this reminds us of our Lord's teaching, Satan is the father of lies, and there is no truth in him. It is as if somehow they never heard of the popular quiz people enjoyed behind the Iron Curtain, as I remember. Who is a communist? A person who's read the books of Marx and Lenin. 
So who is an anti-communist? The person who's understood them. <laughs> this problem of enthrallment with communism among the Western intelligentsia touches upon real evil, as it continues to pose a deadly threat to the Western world today, when the neo-Marxists of the Frankfurt School are triumphing in undermining the moral fiber of our society. We urgently need to recall Cardinal Ratzinger's analysis. The essential problem of our times is that although the fallacy of the communist economy has been recognized, the moral and religious question that Marxism used to address has been almost totally repressed. The unresolved issue of Marxism lives on. The crumbling of men's original certainties about God, himself, and the universe. The decline of a moral conscience grounded in absolute values is still our problem today. Left untreated, it could lead to the self-destruction of the European conscience, which we must begin to consider as a real danger. The words of Colonel Rassinger. We may remember the French writer Charles Baudelaire, famous maxim, that Satan's triumph consists in persuading people that he does not exist. Communists follow this diabolical strategy, persuading people that they no longer exist. They have changed into good social democrats, that's what they've done in Eastern Europe. But satanic evil cannot change its nature. Pope Pius XI, already before World War II, warned that those who naively fall for the communist promises are bound to be the first to be destroyed by them. But let's return back to the communist practice of killing 10% of the population as a historical necessity in the logic of the class struggle. Towards the end of World War II, the Soviet armies entered Poland and immediately imposed a reign of communist terror. The propaganda was relentless about Poland being a country of bourgeois exploiters of the workers, and so mass arrests and executions followed of anyone suspected of being middle class, educated, clergy, or in government service. Growing up, I would listen to the stories of our grandparents' generation about the Soviets taking over Poland. It was unending horror, and the common description, and this is what, I, what struck me even, even as a kid, the common description of the Soviets among Poles was the devils. the devils. Among our close neighbor in Warsaw, there was a family of a widowed mother with two daughters. By high school age, I could understand the tragedy of this family, a story very common in post-war Poland. The father survived the war fighting the Nazis in the underground resistance. As the communists took power, they turned viciously upon the fighters of the patriotic underground arresting, torturing them, and executing by the thousands. Why would they do this? Because this is how communists think. They were perceived as potential threat to the system, being courageous, dedicated, Catholic, and patriotic. They came from educated families with solid traditions and values, and people like that were automatically designated by communists as enemies of the proletarian state and relegated to physical destruction. When in recent years I was serving a Polish parish in Brooklyn, I befriended an elderly man who told me how he survived, as a young man at the time, in a village near Krakow, when the Soviets came in 45. His neighbor was a worker at a rail station and warned him that the Soviets would hunt bourgeois enemies of the people by checking their hands. If the hands were clean and cared for, it would be a death sentence. So he, he, bear, he 
um, buried all the decent clothing that he had that survived, and he wore oil-stained work garments and rubbed his hands for hours with mud, dirty oil, and manure, pushing the dirt under the fingernails. And indeed, that's what happened. The Soviet soldiers burst into the village, pushed him against the wall, and examined his hands. As they were rough and dirty, the soldiers slapped him on the shoulder, saying, you are a worker, so our friends. That's how he survived. But his father, who before the war was a prison inspector, was not so lucky. The Soviets took him, and he was never heard from again. The Western intellectual elite's devious claim that communism is benevolent and had never been really implemented is, in the words of one uh, contemporary philosopher, it is one of the most enduring myths in human discourse. On college campuses, communism is defended and even praised, while in dorms, one commonly finds portraits of Marx, Lenin, Mao, and Che Guevara. The faces of these bloody monsters appear on student t-shirts, and it does not elicit any adverse reaction. Imagine if a student appeared on campus with a t-shirt showing Nazi leaders. How can we explain this disequilibrium in our historical memory? The tragic fact is that Western democracies, in their social and economic policies, have been penetrated to the core with Marxist ideas and principles. The assault on religion, the growing power of the government over our lives, the expansion of the welfare state, the progressive tax system, the feminist and gender revolutions, the attack on marriage and family, the aggressive rise of the so-called sexual minorities, the dictatorship of political correctness, the depraved public education system. All those phenomena have their roots in the Communist Manifesto of Marx and Engels of 1848. If you read it, you will find it there. That's where the roots are. The renowned Jesuit writer and theologian, Father John Hardin, I would think it's, it's a name known to, uh, to many, many here. He was described as, as humble Catholic giant. Okay. And who was an academic authority on Marxism. He would stun his audiences, stating, as we come to the close of the 20th century, we are seeing the gravest crisis in the history of Christianity. In my judgment, at the center of this crisis is the deep penetration of Marxism into our beloved country. I believe we can say even more. Our country is a Marxist nation. Father Hart, in, in his lecture. Here we return to the topic of this presentation as it was inspired by all these questions about the communist evil that just defied the powers of the intellect. How could such evil arise? What is its nature? How could it conquer half of the globe and slaughter 100 million people? How is it possible that it has escaped condemnation and justice and still continues to exert intellectual attraction among influential social groups, posing a deadly threat to our Western societies? My main thesis in this presentation argues that such evil cannot be grasped or explained solely by academic and socio-political categories of analysis. In other words, it transcends purely human dimensions. First, it should be noted that the academic world does not operate with notions such as evil. The positive sciences reject such a term outright as it does not belong to the empirical realm. This is what Cardinal Ratzinger criticized as truncated notion of reason. 
whereby all rationality is limited to functionality. Communist evil can be comprehended as much as we can, only within the realms of metaphysics and theology. For we are dealing here with transcendent realities of the eternal conflict between good and evil. This approach is certainly congenial to our Catholic vision of reality. So we start with this proposition. Evil is where God is not. Jesus said only God is good. He is the source of all goodness. No goodness exists of itself or in man by himself. Analogously, where God is not, Satan is. Thus evil is. Our Lord often taught about the prince of this world and referred to evil acts as the enemy Satan did this. During the final judgment, the angels will separate the sons of the evil one from the sons of the kingdom. Thus, the world is a stage, as Shakespeare said, the world is a stage of a conflict between those two realms. Just as God has his followers, so does Satan. Recall Jesus' words to the Pharisees. You belong to your father, the devil, and you willingly carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in truth, because there is no truth in him. He is a liar and the father of lies. That conflict determines history, not Marxist class struggle. And every person must make a decision to whom he wants to belong. There is no neutrality possible. C.S. Lewis expressed it so poignantly. There is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second, is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. The characteristic of our time is the conviction of men that they can stand exactly halfway between God and the devil, or reject them as unreal or irrelevant, uncommitted either to the goodness or to evil. Now, this is considered true freedom. The famous American psychiatrist, a convert to Christianity, Dr. Scott Peck, you probably remember his book, The Road Less Troubled Than People of the Lie, Okay. Dr. Scott Peck dismissed such freedom as impossible, and he wrote, that freedom is to be torn apart. It is intolerable. We must choose. The Catholic historian Roberto de Mattei wrote, the history of the 20th century until our days has seen the struggle between the children of light and the children of darkness. The first nourished themselves on what we might call the spirit of Fatima, the second on the spirit of the prince of darkness, which in the 20th century was manifested above all under the form of communism and its metamorphoses. The Matei mentions here an aspect of history which we must necessarily bring into this discussion. As many historians contend, the history of the 20th century cannot be understood apart from Fatima. During the apparition, the Blessed Mother warned that Russia will scatter her errors throughout the world. Sister Lucia also conveyed a warning that Satan was waging a war against God and was preparing for a decisive battle. Soon the Bolshevik Revolution swept through Russia. It was literally weeks after the Blessed Mother's appearance. They swept through Russia, unleashing hell and spreading the communist ideology, subverting all natural and Christian order, waging a war on God, religion, morality, family, human nature, in the name of establishing paradise on earth. And curiously and significantly, the communists used the term paradise. I remember this from school. Right. This was how they described it. 
communists to come. Yet, this is not a term from political science. It's not a scientific term. And yet, they would, it is theology. And they would use it. Catholic historians point out that through the Bolshevik Revolution, in a manner of speaking, the communist philosophy became incarnate in history. The revolution appears then like a diabolical parody of the mystery of the incarnation. Jesus, by his becoming incarnate, wanted to open the gates of heaven to humanity, to all of us. The Russian Revolution closed the gates of heaven in order to make the earth a place of an impossible paradise. It was an eruption of the demonic into history. And it's, it's, it's a comment found in many writers, many philosophers, many theologians of our time. Eruption of the demonic into history. And the Blessed Mother foretold that. Cardinal Ratzinger, in his academic uh, career, still as, as bishop in, and even before, especially in the German universities, he taught openly that evil Marxist ideologies, because they split into Nazism and communism, or anti-God religions had demonic roots. Now, this is an argument of Ratzinger, okay, as a professor. They could not be explained otherwise. Marx was a member of a satanic sect while Hitler participated in occult satanic rituals that we know. Communism and Nazism, both incarnations of Marxism, with their hatred of God and Christianity, with genocides, horrendous lies, and enslavements of entire nations, were like an orgy of demons. It is not possible to offer a purely human explanation of such evil. It was committed by men, of course, but men who are servants of the spirits of evil that live in the celestial regions, in the words of St. Paul. Pope Leo XIII, the late 19th century, also recognized the true nature of communism, writing in his encyclical Humanum Genus, in this insane and wicked endeavor, we may almost see the implacable hatred and spirit of revenge with which Satan himself is inflamed against Jesus Christ. He was commenting on, 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 on communism. And here I will propose the second thesis guiding our reflection on evil. The greatest evil is the one that camouflages itself as the greatest good. Just as the greatest enemy of God, the devil, apes God, as even medieval theologians were writing about, the Antichrist pretends to be Christ. Communism presents itself as the greatest good of humanity, as salvation for the human race. This is in a way the essence of its demonic evil and the reason why it is supremely dangerous and seductive and why it can be understood only from a theological perspective. Let us recall that Pope Pius XI had no illusions as to the true nature of communist evil as a diabolical religion. Writing in Domini Redemptoris, communism conceals in itself a false messianic idea a pseudo-ideal of justice, of equality and fraternity impregnates all its doctrine and activity with a deceptive mysticism which communicates a zealous and contagious enthusiasm to the multitudes entrapped by delusive promises. Such venerable brethren, the Pope writes, is the new gospel which Bolshevistic and atheistic communism offers the world as the glad tidings of deliverance and salvation. What the world has largely forgotten, but must be brought to our attention here, is the fact that even Marx and Engels 
considered their program of the proletarian revolution to be an act of faith. Both of them Jews, raised as Christians, and then choosing atheism with, with a violent desire to smash the Christian God, were in a way on a mission to found a new secular religion. The first edition of what is known as the Communist Manifesto, and it's known from 1848, but the first edition, published in 47, had a different title. The title of the first edition was A Project of the Communist Profession of Faith. This is 1847, the Communist Manifesto. Communist Profession of Faith. It was Lenin and the Bolsheviks who turned Marxism into science. This is how it was taught in schools in Poland. That's what we were learning. That uh, Marxism-Leninism is scientific. It's science. Yet, yet the principles of Marxist theory were treated as dogmas, like the revealed truths of Christianity, thus forming, in the words of Professor Leszek Kowakowski, who is from Oxford, who was a preeminent uh, expert on Marxism, he said, it, it formed a profoundly religious or theological doctrine. That's how he referred to, 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 to Marxism and, and its principles. Theological doctrine. The French philosopher Raymond Aron offered a fascinating description of communism, calling it the first successful religion of the intellectuals. To people living in communist countries, and especially those like Poland with strong religious background, Communism appeared like a parody of religion. It has its own Bible and liturgy, saints and holy days, priests and processions, and even temples to their martyrs. Christianity calls God our Father. And this is how the Soviet population was conditioned to call Stalin. Forced indoctrination of children started already in kindergarten, where Stalin was praised as a godlike figure. As religion promises immortality, so did the Soviet system, where one of the fundamental slogans was this one, Lenin eternally alive. It was taught as a dogma in schools, and I remember it was, it was on a banner in our classroom, Lenin eternally alive. And perhaps most importantly, communism as religion had its eschatological promise of salvation of humanity in a stateless, classless social bliss when the dialectic of history based in class struggle would be no more. Where the new man, without egoism or desire for property, without alienation from himself or society, without family, with common sharing of women and children, because that, that was a, a communist program. Even when the Soviets were coming into Poland in 1945, the old people would, would tell. That's what it was to be. Women were to be commonly shared. There was to be a communist common ownership of women and children. And without God, or any opium of spirituality, would contribute according to his ability and receive according to his need. This is by any analysis an astounding religion, as all this was to be realized here on earth. And so many had faith. In my school, teachers would try to persuade us that communist paradise was just around the corner. The reason why it was not here yet, as they were telling us, was that we were still in socialism, a transitory stage, so a transitory period, during which some enemies still had to be dealt with, and with some details to be worked out. <laughs> I remember looking at them, glorifying the happiness to come like biblical prophets. 
And this was at a time when people had to wait three hours to buy bread. Okay? And I was struck by the thought. They really believe. Just like I believed in God and heaven. This is their religion. So are they atheists? The Polish people were really obsessing over this question. And among the popular stories about the system was the one telling how Karl Olszynski, the great hero of the church in Poland, was called to a meeting with the first secretary of the Communist Party. The secretary anxious, anxiously argued, explain to me, comrade cardinal, something I cannot understand. There is really no difference between you and us. We promise to people salvation, and so do you in your church. So why is it that people flock to you while the party has to force people to come to us? And Cardinal Wyszynski responded, You've made one mistake. You promised salvation in this world. We promise it in the next. Since the first grade, in school, above the blackboard, there hung a picture of Marx. In every classroom. There, there would be also Lenin. Uh, Stalin was gone by the time, because Stalin was also there. Okay. So there was a, a picture of Marx. And in our parish religion classroom, above the blackboard, there hung the picture of Jesus. And to us kids, the funny thing was that both had beards and long hair. Ah, <laughs> uh, but Jesus was much prettier, much more gentle and trustworthy. Marx looked to us really scared. The time when I realized that with the communists we were dealing with a religion and people of faith was in a way a turning point in my interpretation of reality. Since they were cursing God, it was becoming evident to me that the only option for them was to belong to the Prince of Darkness. So Poland, a Catholic nation, was in fact split into two religions. And I would often hear people joking that the communists had stronger faith than me. How could they have not? That they had faith. That in their view, they could do more than move mountains. They could construct paradise. So they believed. When the first secretary in a rousing speech to the party members said, under bourgeois capitalism, our country was standing on the brink of an abyss. Thanks to glorious communism, we have made a bold step forward. <laughs> there was a time in my youth, and this was in high school years, when I was struggling with the idea that I should admire communists for their, for their faith. My faith looked sort of small compared to theirs. The chief communist newspaper in the Soviet world, as you may remember, carried the appropriate title, Pravda. Pravda, of course, it means truth. Now, this is not a, politically, uh, sort of a political science term. Very dangerous. Communists, their main, main newspaper would be called Pravda. So, uh, metaphysical reality, okay. And, and from early on in life, we learned, everybody learned, from childhood, why it was necessary for everyone to religiously buy this newspaper every day. It was because the communist system did not produce liberty. <laughs> this, this was the truth. This was the truth about communism, and it still is. If you look at Venezuela, if you look at North Korea, if you look at all the communist countries, Cuba or whatever, one thing is interesting. They have this one thing in common. There is no title. That's the truth about communism. And in that part of the world, which is Poland, no, Russia, no, where the winters are terribly cold. They believed in paradise, which normally is associated with warm, blissful weather. And perhaps for that reason, the system didn't bother to produce good shoes. 
for who would really need them if you're lying under palm trees you know, and, and nice weather? So such faith really belongs to giants, not men. Yet fortunately for us, the communists produced newspapers in abundance worthy of paradise. So when in winter, Polish people religiously wrapped their feet for warmth in that precious communist paper, bearing the photographs of party leaders and their words of wisdom, before putting the shoes on to go to church. They knew that ours was a country of believers and religion was power. Amazingly, we admired the faith of the communists so much that even though Catholics, we shared the opinion that they would not go to hell. Why? Because there, they would construct such paradise that the devils would not survive. <laughs> I, I will close this point by restating the thesis that evil is the greatest when it masquerades as the greatest good, when it apes God. I've always considered this religious nature of communism as a manifestation of its deepest demonic evil and seductive danger. For this explains the reason why millions followed it so blindly, even agreeing to commit unspeakable crimes in its name or to die for it. This also sheds light on the enigma why communism holds such attraction to the leftist godless intelligentsia and rebellious youth. It offers a substitute religion without that name. It satisfies the need for faith, providing a systematic corpus of dogmatic explanations of reality in its historical, cosmological, and eschatological dimensions. It provides a mobilizing dynamic for action in a universal perspective, in a deceptive spirit of self-sacrifice for the greatest good, salvation of humanity in a perfect world. As youth, we were taught that to be a communist was an honor, for the party expected you to be heroic and ready for self-sacrifice for the cause. This is all religion. This is not <coughs> science. This is why communism has such seductive impact on young students who are idealistic and so uncritically open to the dreams of earthly utopia, believing they can change the world and make it perfect. But it is all a monstrous lie for it is premised on the death of God, and consequently, death of truth. As the Blessed Mother warned, Russia will spread her errors, and error is the denial of truth. A religion against God, who is love, could only become a religion of demons. And so communism preaching utopian earthly salvation unleashed a merciless tyranny of terror against class enemies, as the necessary method of achieving its goal. The only morality, in Lenin's words, was the principle, the end justifies the means. Whatever serves the interest of the revolution is good. When this is so, such religion inevitably becomes genocidal, yet its members and sympathizers accept it by faith. They believe, when becoming willing executioners, they believe when they so often die as the victims, for revolutions devour their own children. One of the most terrifying descriptions of what communism as false religion could do to people is found in the writings of Varwam Shalamov, a true literary genius who spent decades as prisoner of the Gulag in Kolyma, the last circle of hell, as it was known in the Soviet Union. 
Shalamov describes the transports of innocent people in cattle rail cars to Siberia, to their inevitable deaths. And in those trains, starving and diseased, lying on wooden boards covered with straw, over weeks of trouble, they would sing a popular song about Soviet Russia. I do not know of any other lands where men can live so free. I read Shalamov in my high school years. Of course, this was an illegal book smuggled into Poland, and we had those. And remember that this narrative pierced my mind and opened my eyes as it offered a glimpse into the bowels of communism and its diabolical evil. For even today, so many years after, I still ask, how can you explain it? A religion takes possession of one's soul. And communism wanted most of all to gain power over human souls. The economics is the outside veneer. Communism wanted human souls. And Khrushchev, as you remember, he was in the States. Khrushchev did not hide it when he made his inf infamous threat. He said this, total relentless struggle until communist victory and control over every soul remains our goal even now. Whether you like it or not, history is on our side. We will bury you. Now, it's a pity that only the last phrase is remembered. Okay, everybody remembers we'll bury you. But few remember what he said before that phrase. He said, total control over every soul is our goal even now. It was a crucial point in my young life, for at that time I was under pressure to join the communist scouting movement, and I definitely decided not to. It was all about the soul. I realized I would have to sell it to the devil and his religion. Catholic faith leads us towards the freedom of God's children, while communist faith turns us into perfect slaves who believe they are free. Thanks to the Catholic faith, the Polish people realized the danger of Bolshevism very early on. Remember 1920, the miracle and the Vistula, one of the battles that changed the history of the world. Okay? The Polish people were not fighting communists or Soviets, they were fighting the devil. That was the rallying cry. This was a religious war. And indeed, it was the Blessed Mother who won it. Because the Poles, by any human logic, stood no chance of winning it against the Bolsheviks. But the Blessed Mother appeared above the battlefield near Warsaw. And even the Soviet prisoners, the Bolsheviks who were taken prisoner, they also reported seeing a woman upon the clouds above the battlefield. This was a religious war. This was a war against the devils. And when in 1939, Poland was crushed by both sides by the forces of two ideological brothers in evil, Hitler and Stalin. The Polish Marshal Ritz Schmigwe said, if the Germans win, we will lose our lands. If the Soviets win, we will lose our souls. So when we look at the, all the post-war years in which I was growing up, the post-war years of resisting communist oppression until 1989, it was marked by a struggle not so much against tanks. It was not a, so much a struggle for land. To us, it was a struggle to save our souls. It was a religious war. And this is why our refuge and strength was in the Catholic Church. The enemy, the Communist Party, was also a church for its faith. 
And that's how the nation was divided, representing the clash of two kingdoms from celestial powers. <coughs> On a concluding note, I can tell you how we Catholics kept up our spirits that we would, in the, at, the, at the end, win. We shared stories like this one. The Soviet leader, Brezhnev, growing impatient that so many problems were still unresolved, though communism promised it would all be over now and paradise would reign. He asked for an audience with God. And being received, he asked, Comrade God, be so good to tell me. I have two questions to ask you. First, when will the Russians stop drinking and stealing and become true communists? Not in your lifetime, said God. Comrade God, the second question, tell me, when will communism establish paradise on earth? Not in my lifetime, responded God. This is, this is how we Catholics knew that God was on our side. Dr. O'Donnell, Father Pollard, honorable faculty, distinguished guests and friends of Christendom College. It's been a great honor to stand before you this evening and share some thoughts on the demonic nature of communism as we are preparing for the eagerly awaited symposium on the problem of evil. I am so grateful to Dr. O'Donnell for the invitation and to each one of you for your kind attention and the wonderful atmosphere of this evening together. Our glimpse at the demonic nature of communist evil has reminded us, as one philosopher said, evil advances when good recedes. Error is affirmed only when the truth is extinguished. The revolution wins only when tradition surrenders. We are so blessed to be gathered in Christendom College, a place that exists for the very purpose of making good advance, truth be kept shining brightly, and tradition be cherished. All in the name of Christ our Lord, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and who assures us, fear not, I have conquered the world. May God bless each one of you. May God bless our college. Thank you very much. Thank you.